Hey guys, check out the 2023 Street Cop Conference, April 23rd through the 28th, Gaylord Convention Center. It's going to be the event of the year. Keynote speakers include Rob O'Neill, the guy who killed Bin Laden, Kyle Carpenter, the youngest living Medal of Honor recipient, Navy SEAL Jason Redmond, Fox News host Tommy Laren, Marine Corps Special Forces and Leadership Coach Cody Alford, Sheriff Wayne Ivey, Sheriff David Clark, and Sheriff Mark Lamb. It's going to be one hell of an event. And on top of that, we have all of our instructors and additional instructors from other companies going to be at the event, giving you everything they know for you to have a successful career and get the results you want to get in the field as a police officer. On top of attending the event, you'll get face-to-face -face time with every instructor attending the event, and all the keynote speakers will spend time with you. we got special events all week, giveaways, nightlife. It's going to be really, really worth your time, energy, and effort. I promise you, you will not regret it for a second. To register for the conference, check out streetcop.com, click conference, and everything you need will be there on the homepage. If you are looking for a room, just click book a room. The block has been sold out at the Gaylord Opryland Convention Center but there are many hotels nearby within a walking distance of the event. You don't want to miss out on this opportunity. We will see you there. Hey, Cops and Riders. Thanks for being here with us today for another episode of the Cops and Riders podcast. I'm Patrick O'Donnell, and I will be your host for today's show. On today's show, I speak with Dennis Benino, who is the founder and CEO of Street Cop Training. His law enforcement career began in 2001 at 19 years of age as a New Jersey correctional officer. In 2004, Benino became a police officer with the U.S. Park Police Department in Washington, D.C., and in 2005 moved over to the position of police officer in one of New Jersey's largest municipalities. He has received multiple awards, including but not limited to the Life-Saving, Meritorious Service, Mayor's Award for Excellence in Public Service, several letters of recognition, leadership awards, and certificates of appreciation from several law enforcement aid organizations. He now leads one of the fastest-growing law enforcement education companies in the country. Dennis is recognized as not only as an instructor, but as a thought leader and influencer in modern-day policing. His outspoken vision of changing law enforcement for the better has struck the hearts of over 150,000 followers on social media platforms alone. He has now partnered with several nonprofits and works to provide no-cost support to several families. Dennis is also the host of the wildly popular Street Cop podcast. In today's episode, we discuss why he was interested in law enforcement, his first job in law enforcement working in the jail, why he left law enforcement, what he misses the most from his days in uniform on the street, Dennis starting the street cop training company, what students should expect from one of his classes, the future of law enforcement, his street cop podcast that is currently in the top 2.5% of all published podcasts. All this and more on today's episode of the Cops and Writers podcast. Dennis Benino, welcome to the show. Hey, man. Thanks for having me, Pat. I always like to ask my guests where they started in law enforcement. So what was your start? How old were you and where did you uh, work? You know, essentially, I, I'll i just have to dial it back a little bit to the time when I was in high school. I hated school, uh, <laughs> but I thought that I had to go to college to become a cop. I didn't know any cops. I didn't have any cops in my family. I just wanted to be a cop. I think I wanted to be a cop from when I was about as four years old, right? I really always had a, an affinity 
for the police profession. But I ended up going to community college and I remember being there my first semester and my criminal justice teacher, I was only taking two classes. She said, no, you don't need college to be a cop. And I like raised my hand and I was like, I'm sorry. And her name was Professor Payne. She was good people. Um, I, I I still am very, you know, I, I, I appreciated her so much. She did a really nice job at what she did. And she said, no, you don't need college to be a cop. I went, what do you, what do you mean? And she's like, you can be 18, no college degree, and take the civil service test in New Jersey. And I was like, hey, where do I get one of these things? This is like <laughs> 1999, right? So right. she's like, you got to go to your library and find the applications. And I was like, all right. And I remember driving around my, I lived in a big town, and every library I went to, they're like, we don't have the applications, they're gone. You couldn't just go on the internet and print them. Sure. You had to find, I went to the police department. I finally found the library out of the maybe nine that we have in town. And they had applications. I took two. I filled it out, made sure it was right, sent it in, essentially took my civil service test. I really had no idea how hard it was to get on the job in New Jersey, but it's extremely difficult at that time to paint some context of how hard it was. If a police department that was not participating in civil service announced a job position or an a you know, just just one job, you'd have no bullshit about a thousand guys and girls showing up for the one job. It was oh, yeah. the job everybody wanted. It was four on, four off, essentially. You know, everybody was making a hundred thousand in three years. This is 1999. Hmm. Um, cops were extremely respected in New Jersey. It was the brotherhood and sisterhood. But anyway, I took the test, um, thinking I was gonna be a cop no matter, you know, almost immediately. But I ended up getting called for corrections and didn't know much about it, didn't put too much thought into it. In New Jersey, corrections is a sworn position. Now they actually say police on their uniforms. Oh, okay. Um, so there's a sworn, you're a, you're a full-fledged law enforcement officer uh, with no ability to write tickets. It's the only thing you don't get here, but you're technically <laughs> a cop. So okay. I sat down at my interview and they're like, hey, I was 19. They're like, you want to be, be a corrections officer? And I'm like, what, what's that entail? And they're like, uh, ditto. You get PBA cards and a gun. And a badge, and I'm like, I'm 19. I'm like, yeah, hell yeah, yeah. I'm in. <laughs> right. So, um, I went to my corrections academy in uh, October, October 9th, 2001, and I thought that I was that was right after 9 11 occurred. What mm. we were hearing a lot about is the recruits were going and sifting through all the garbage at 9 11, oh. uh, all the rubble. And I'm yeah. like, oh man, my father was forked for the Port Authority and he was in a cop, he was an electrician there, and he's like, hey. You know, they they got a lot of these police academy recruits going through all the garbage at 9-11. I'm guessing that's what probably going to have you guys doing, too. Because it wasn't even a month after when I started, just about, okay. um, you know, obviously here in New Jersey. So I I did the Corrections Academy of 17 weeks. And then I came to work. And the second day working in jail, I looked around and I was like, damn, I better fucking go back to college. <laughs> right. Like I like because I can't I'm not going to be. And I thought I'd be there for like three months. And a couple of my friends left right away. They had better test scores than I did. OK, uh, a couple of people got to leave, go to PDs. And I was like, Jesus Christ, I can't I can't be here. So um, I started taking as many tests as I could. At that time, New Jersey just introduced something called the alternate route program, where if you had 60 college credits, you could put yourself through the police academy. USAjobs.gov also just came out. So I was taking. I mean, literally anything with a law enforcement tag on it was better than working corrections. And by the way, for the people who are listening to this that do work corrections, my hat's off to you. It's a very hard job. No, and I wasn't bad at it. It's just terrible. It's a fucking horrible job. 
let me ask you this, as far as the corrections, was that through the sheriff's department? Were you working like in a county jail? Yeah, so it was a county jail. So I had a choice. The state asked, and then, the, so here's what happened. At the same time, I was going through state corrections and county corrections, knowing I wasn't going to stay in corrections. Yeah. And understanding the state, so a few things. Some of our state facilities are so old, there's no air conditioning and barely <laughs> any heat. Right. So I would deliver pizza to a place called East Jersey State Prison, which is Rawway Prison, which you'll see in a lot of movies. That's where they film a lot of their shit, like Tango and Cash. If you actually mm. look at the beginning of uh, Ocean's Eleven, they're coming yeah. out of East Jersey State Prison. That's I used to deliver pizza there all the time. <laughs> okay. As a matter of fact, when they were shooting Ocean's Eleven, I was a pizza delivery guy, and I had to go deliver to the set with George Clooney, and oh, they were all there. Okay. So that was cool, but that was the place. And, dude, I would watch these guys dying in the heat, right? <laughs> it was brutal. No air conditioning. I think that prison was built in, like, 1885 or 1890. Wow. Yeah, so a lot of stuff is – you could find a lot of literature on Railway State Prison. But also, when you were a state employee, you were at the beckoning call of where they wanted to put you. So if they needed people mm -hmm. in Edna Mahan Women's Facility – they would send you there. And I was hearing a lot of horror stories about shit like that. And I was like, look, the county jail's air conditioned. I'm not going to be in it for long. You know, the state was like, come to us. We have a SOG team and you could do transport in three years. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to be here. I don't like, I'm not going to, I want to get the job and everything like that. So I took the county job, which ended up later on, if you're in New Jersey, being a significantly better position, better contracts, mm. uh, better at some point became better opportunities, uh, but overall a better job if you were going to stay in corrections, in my opinion. I think counties do better than the state does here. You got a lot of people from the state trying to go to the counties. Gotcha. Uh, um, so, you know, I was there and I started taking tests and I was in college. I was going to, I was working full-time as a corrections officer and I was actually going to college full-time as well, doing like four or five classes a semester. Okay. So I would actually sneak my homework in and sit in the units, the housing units, to do my homework. Sure. It's funny because like the inmates would be like, I'm like, yo, I got a fucking test tomorrow. Can we just shut the fuck up? And they're like, yo, yo, chill, chill. Benito got a test tomorrow. I'm like, you guys can fuck off tomorrow. That's fine. But today I got to study, guys. You can't fuck. I'm telling like 48, probably half of which are murderers in my housing unit. I've known them for a while, right? These guys spend right. all my fucking time with these guys. And I'm like, please, guys, I don't, I don't break balls in here. I'm telling you right now, I'm like 20 screaming at a housing unit. I'm like, I have a test tomorrow. I got to get the fuck out of this place, right? So right as I was completing my 60 credits, and the only reason I was going to college was to give me the ability to get into the alternate route program. Sure. That's all I was trying to do, become eligible for that. Because that was a real big win. It was new. Once you got certified here, you know, you were golden. This is like the whole thing. You, it was very hard to get certified. Once you had that certification, that PTC certification, that's the Police Training Commission. Mm -hmm. You were golden. But at the same time, I was taking tests all over with the federal government. I was actually going through the process with CBP. Um, that's Customs Border Patrol. And with U.S. Park Police. And, you know, CBP, I didn't care. People were like, you're going to work at the airport and stamp passports? I'm like, I don't give a fuck. Like, right. you know what it's like working in jail? You know what it's like going to jail on an 84-degree day and it's perfect weather out and you're not allowed to leave? If you want to go to your car, you got to get permission from the shift commander to go out to your car to get like no cell phones, no nothing. You're like literally cut off from society for you don't know what's going on uh, and stuck, man. You're getting stuck in overtime like fucking crazy. 16 hour shift. It was brutal. It was a, it's a real crappy job, to be quite honest with you. 
Well, I'll tell you what. I started in 1986. I was in college, and I did an internship. My internship was with the Milwaukee County Sheriff's Department. And the first thing they did was stick me in jail. And it was the old jail facility. They've upgraded quite substantially. They have what they call the criminal justice facility, which is super modern, nice, clean, air-conditioned, et cetera. (laughs) And I remember walking in. My first day, it's like, okay, you're going to work in the jail. They put me on the crazy wing with all the crazy people, the most violent people, you know, blah, blah, blah. And the odor, it didn't have air conditioning. It was a hot summer day. It was, I don't know, somewhere in the 80s, maybe even warmer. And they had what they called forced air, which they would just have air going through, but was just recycled air of what's in there. And the overwhelming odor of urine, feces, and body odor is the first thing. It just slaps you across the face. And you're like, oh, my God, this sucks. It was overcrowded. People are sleeping on the fucking floor, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, okay, I'm glad I'm doing this because I know, A, I, do, I don't want to do this ever. This is a miserable existence for the people in here and for the employees, A little, probably a little more for the employees. And that was a good motivator for me to, it was like, yeah. I don't want to work corrections. God bless the people that are doing it. Somebody's got to do it. It's a dirty job. But you learn how to talk to people. You're co- you're constantly outnumbered. You have no weapons. The only weapon you have is the gift of gap. Yeah, and I think one thing that it teaches you is, you know, to have respect for people, even if they're inmates. Yes. Absolutely. In a sense of, you know, like, it's not you versus them. It's you all working together, as crazy as that sounds. But I talk about that recycle there. I think every every year that I worked there, I was probably sick nine to 12 times throughout the year because these people come off the streets sick as a dog, bring oh, yeah. it in recycle there. I, I'm, I'm talking like nine to 12 times a year I was sick. And maybe that's why I'm not very sick very often um, <laughs> you have a as a 41-year-old man, up. you know? Yes. <laughs> So, uh, you know, I took a, I was going through the process between CBP and Park Police and Park Police called and they said, hey, do you, you know, you want this job? And I was like, yeah, they're like, you want to know what you're going to do? I'm like, no, <laughs> I just don't want to come back to work anymore. I remember going down to the shift commander's office. His name is Mike May, uh, Matey. Good dude. Um, and I went down. I was like, hey, LT, how are you? He's like, good. I'm like, can you pull the vacation book out and tell me how many days I got on the books? He's like, you have t- you have 10 vacation days. And I said, all right. And I shook his hand. I went. I'm done. I'm putting them all in. I won't be here for the next two weeks. And I'm also typing up my two weeks notice right now. I'm leaving. I'm going off to Washington, D.C. to be a cop. And he's like, all right. And we went in the parking lot and hung out for a little bit. And then we went down to a pub down the street with some of my shift workers. And, <laughs> you know, I think there was uh, a little bittersweet. I think there was people were like, you know, I got to come back here tomorrow. He doesn't. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I couldn't. I couldn't be more happy and elated to receive that call. And at that time, you could have a cell phone in jail. So I took the call in in an inmate's room at like 9 o'clock at night, right before the shift ended at 10. And I was like, I popped the door. I'm like, yo, I got to use the cell phone. He's like, it was one of the inmates. He's like a trustee. I'm like, I just, oh sure, let me go in here because I can't get reception. Let's go near the window. And they called and they were like, you know, what's your belt size? What's your shoe size? I was like, do I get the job? And they're like, yeah, you start whatever. It was like March. We started maybe April 4th or somewhere in mid-March. And I was like. Bro, I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh, this is great. Like, I just, this is my last hour here. Like, I wasn't coming back no matter what. Even if I sure. didn't have the vacation time, I'm like, I'm not coming. I'll just take, not take pay. 
And I went out in the parking lot and I was like, guys, I'm done. Like I grabbed everybody in the parking lot and I shifted away. A big agency. You know, we had a, at the time, we probably had 1,300 inmates. So we probably had a shift of 30, 40 COs. Sure, sure. And we were all real close. I, I will say this about corrections. The camaraderie there uh, was profound. I have never found that again. Those were the tightest group of people I ever worked with. And they were, uh, they stuck together. They were just, had just much more of a deep relationship than what I saw at two additional police departments. Hmm. Interesting. So you go working for the park police in Washington, D.C. What was that like? Well, I went to Fletzy, went to Georgia, spent five months there, six days a week. Uh, it was the best five months of my life. Wasn't easy. Uh, wasn't drill instruction, but they they beat the crap out of us pretty good. Okay. And uh, I went to D.C. And when I got there, I was like, all right, this place is fucked up. Not only <laughs> is the city fucked up, the agency's fucked up. And it, I saw that, like, they were broke. People were complaining. There was no money. There's no overtime. The benefits are crappy. The whole nine. Compared to New Jersey, I was like, yeah, I got to get back to Jersey. Now, the only reason I took Park Police was because if you agreed to work in D.C. where they needed people for a year to a year and a half or even two, you could transfer back to New York, which meant I could live in New Jersey and be eligible to be back in New Jersey. Now I'm a young guy. I'm 22 years old. Sure. So I have, by the time I left Park Police, I had four and a half years in the job at 20. So I got hired at the town that I grew up in. I don't want to say the name of it. I was just before my 24th birthday. That was my third police agency. And unfortunately, I had to go back to a police academy. And unfortunately, my third academy was the worst one I had to go to. And it was basically the Hanoi Hilton of police academies. <laughs> if you don't know what that is, you can Google Hanoi Hilton. Oh, this was the I know what that POW is, yeah. camp of, uh, of Vietnam that was had the worst reputation. And no doubt, it certainly preceded itself. It was a fucking disaster. They were brutal. They never let up once. It was completely unnecessary. It was probably one of the worst experiences of my life. We didn't learn anything. Um, and they just liked that organization, like hanging their hat on the fact that like they were the toughest. And, you know, they, people will conjure up like, oh, we think people write reports better when they come out of this police academy. I'm like, get the fuck out of here. Right? Like they... This is this is this six months has been an absolute joke. Um, I learned close to nothing. Wow. You know, they just didn't. They liked the reputation of us being hard, but nothing that was actually practical to use in the field. You no. know, but as I sat in these police academy classes, I'm like, man, it could be so much better, right? Like, the, so you and I tried in, to take note of the people who were good, right? The, the right. instructors who I thought were sure. were good and what they did. So you were um, the state park police or park U.S. Police, excuse me. U.S. Park Police. I'm guessing that's like guarding monuments and all that type of stuff in Washington, D.C. I mean, what well, was the role so, so the U.S. Park Police was the first um, uniform division of the federal government for police. They cover huge uh, Baltimore Washington Parkway, George Washington Memorial Parkway, uh, downtown D.C., uptown D.C., uh, all over. So District one had duties uh, once a week. If you worked a three day shift or a four day shift, you would have to go to a walking post at a monument. But other than that, okay. you were on patrol in the streets. And honestly, we didn't have a lot of fucking calls for service. So we were very proactive. We were in pursuits all the time. Really? Uh, we were tearing wow. it up. Yeah. Yeah. So U.S. Park Police was like the top dogs down there at that time. A lot of we just we pursued. We pursued. We probably in three pursuits a day. 
Really? Wow. I never yeah. would yeah. I never would have guessed the park police would get into that. Yeah, three helicopters. They had like 30 horses, 20 oh, wow. canines, full-time SWAT team. It's pretty it's just that, like, yeah, they had all this opportunity. You could ride horses, you could ride motorcycles, you the presidential details, all yeah. this stuff you could do. But I just kept overhearing this theme of like, we're broke. <laughs> like we have we have the worst budget, we're broke, the contracts suck. So it was a cool job, but they were broke. And they still are broke. Okay. Uh, I was talking to a, I met up with a couple of guys a couple of years ago. One of them is a shift commander down there. They have take home cars for the shift commanders. And he told me that his his take home car, like 200 and something thousand miles on it. It was a Crown Vic. And he was like, literally earlier that day, he was sandpapering the rust off it and spray painting it. <laughs> because they don't have any money. And they like, he doesn't want to lose the take home. So he's just like, literally fixing it himself just so he doesn't have to use his own car. That's funny. I like that. Yeah. So how many years did you work for the park police? Oh, 20 months. I mean, that's including oh, the academy. Okay. I was I was in and out fast. And, and to be honest with you, half the people I got hired with were gone within the next, I'd say the first three years, half the guys and girls were gone. Do you know if it's still like that? High turnover? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Gotcha. So then you go Especially off to- now, right? Because like now there's a lot of opportunity. Oh, yeah. Now, the, now if you want to be a cop, oh, my God, the chips are stacked to you. They're in your favor. So what do you get to do? I mean- $7,500 bonuses, $10,000 moving pays, right? Like they're basically on their hands and knees, these agencies begging for people, you know, um, to come work for them. So it's a whole, listen, even in New Jersey, uh, I think enrollment's down like one third of what it used to be. I get people, I get calls from chiefs all the time that are friends of mine. They're like, yo, you get anybody yeah. like, we're looking for a quality candidate. You know, anybody all the time. And I'm like, not real. You know, like I don't, I know people, but, you know, I don't know how good they are. I don't work with them. So I don't know. I know sure. some people that are, but so, but a lot of the guys that are out there and girls that are out there doing the good work that are the hard chargers that are the, you know, more elitist of the groups here, they're typically home already. You know what I mean? They're not leaving. They're in their space. They're pretty much appreciated for the most part where they work, um, you know, but I came gotcha. back, went to the academy, and then really, I was happy to be in my final destination home, uh, where I worked for ten years, and subsequently got injured in the line of duty, sustained a pretty significant knee injury, and was ultimately forced to medically retire. Uh, but oh. at the time, I about two years doing street cop training. At the time, it was known as NJ Criminal Interdiction, and uh, a couple of years after I started doing this, I actually decided to change the name to make it more universal. Okay, gotcha. Now, when you were a copper in New Jersey, what did you stay on the street and patrol? Did you go over to investigations? Where everybody kind of has their thing, you know. After you get your, you get your basic knowledge, and you start feeling comfortable in your uniform and your car, and you know, like where I worked, you were you started in patrol. You know, you're in a, a patrol car, and you're taking assignments. We call them hitches. It's like go take your hitches. And you were assigned to a district. And then from there, if you had an interest in, say, investigations, then you test to be a detective. You know, if you were so inclined, maybe you could test to be on the TAC unit, you know, et cetera. Where did you go or what was your path? You know, I, I have to be honest with you. I really never had my and this might sound like some bullshit, but it's the truth. I probably at some point in my career wanted to go to narcotics because a couple of my friends went there. Sure. Um, but I remained in patrol. I thoroughly enjoyed patrol. I'd like to consider myself to have really licked patrol quite a bit 
Um, I don't mean that in a sense that I actually physically licked it. I mean, I became like a, uh, a, you know, pretty proficient at being a patrol officer. I did go to narcotics briefly for 90 days. Um, The first day I was in there, I knew it was a huge mistake. And I did not want to do it. And it was pretty clear that they knew that I didn't want to do it. I was not too thrilled and impressed with how the group was behaving towards each other. Uh, I wasn't impressed with the kind of work that was being done. Um, you know, I like the guys. They're my friends. But for me, I thought we were going to go in there and, like, be, you know, having a lot of fun and being just straight up proactive. And yeah, essentially, I showed up and I'm like, guys, I'm going out on the road. I'm going to go start doing work. And they're like, all right, well, take somebody with you. I'm like, oh, okay. Like, nobody wants to work. They're like, nah. So I uh, got a tack vest, went out and started doing what I was doing in patrol anyway, making traffic stops on the highway and finding drugs and, and uh, you know, in unmarked undercover cars. So it, it was like fit, shooting fish in a barrel that way because you could just roll around and snag just about anything if you're looking for. If the game was to try to flip CIs up, I mean, I could knock an arrest down in about 30 minutes. And like, I'm talking like a drug transaction arrest, maybe okay. every 30 minutes to an hour tops. Um, but yeah, I stayed in patrol. Actually, I actually had a guy that I spoke about recently who was a friend of mine. He's my friend's uncle. And they were looking for detectives. I don't recall if I was going to go for it or they came to me and asked me if I wanted to be a detective. And he caught me in the hallway. I could tell you exactly where I was right outside the radio room. And he said, Are you know, I heard your name's in the mix for a detective bureau spot. And I said, yeah, I don't know. You know, I don't know if I'm going to take it or not. He goes, you know, Den, uh, every this police department has been historic for taking the best guys and girls that we have out of patrol and put them in specialized divisions. That's what they do. Okay. These, these commanders, these divisions, they start cherry picking who they want. And, you know, patrol gets left with what patrol gets left with. It's kind of the leftovers that nobody wants. All right. He goes, but, you know, we need guys like you. And he said a couple other names. Uh, to be in patrol because if it wasn't for you guys, you know these guys think about they they they're comfortable when you they won't say it to your face, but I'm telling you, they like when you guys are here. And if you guys leave, you we need guys like you. We need we need talent in patrol. And he said, so I just want you. He's like, patrol's not a bad place to be. And uh, I said to him, you're right. You're actually right. Uh, I'm not leaving patrol. I'm going to let them know that I don't want to go to the bureau or whatever it might be, or I won't take the position if they offer it to me. And he was well, right. And then I really saw it a whole different way, man. I really enjoyed patrol a lot. And um, not because I didn't have opportunities. You know, my friends became commanders and sergeants and all these specialized divisions. I was asked if I wanted to go into some of those places off the record. And I'm like, nah, dude, it's not for me. And plus, we worked a four on four off. If you went to a specialized unit, it was four on three off. It sounds crazy. Oh. But that extra day is a big deal. Oh, it's huge, especially if you're working nights, your first day off. You know, when I worked midnight to eight, I did that for oh shit, 14 years. And your first day back, I mean, your first off day, you're more or less recovering because, you know, the wear and tear of working nights is just horrible on your body. And, you know, you just want to feel like a human being again. And like you said, an extra day off. Oh, it's gold. You you start feeling good about everything. You know, you just it changes a lot of stuff. It really does. Well, dude, they were doing nines. We were doing tens, right? Okay. So you did a 10 hour shift. It's four on four off. You're doing nine, doing four on three off. Mm. And I'm like, dude, I don't. Then I was like, 
of course, narcotics doesn't want to work on the weekends because these guys got to choose. So right. there's no narcotics division in that town at that time, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Like, and every <laughs> every drug dealer knew that, that Absolutely. narcotics doesn't work did. on the weekends. Yep. Right? And I'd say to these guys, I'm like, why don't you guys come in for a weekend and like, like snatch these dudes up? Nah, yep. I don't want to. So, dude, on top of that, like now I'm back in the in the mix with every other mope in the world that's at Home Depot on a Saturday in the fucking crowds. I'm like, <laughs> I'd rather go to Home Depot on a Tuesday when there's nobody there. You know, it's just right. it's a whole different lifestyle. It is. It is. Now, as far as going to the to the detective bureau, was that a tested position or was that just a, hey, we like you. We like your work. Come on over. Yeah, they're my friends. And like, dude, listen, I, you know, one of the. Whatever people are going to say about me, I don't think anybody can ever uh, question or challenge the kind of work that I did. So it was a, I was a good cop. You know, people say, what kind of cop were you? I don't know. Thousands of people have sat in a room for a day or two to hear me talk about how to do the job, and it's changed their careers. Um, and I like being a field training officer. I liked, you know, I didn't like on the being on the range. Um, I couldn't say no when I was a new cop there. You don't talk about getting no friends fast. I sure. make everybody hate you. I became a range instructor six months after being on the job there. Six months. Wow. Yeah. Well, I had four and a half years of experience, right? Okay. I was a hell of a shot and I was a good dude. The guy who ran the range was my FTO and oh, we became okay. friends. And he's like, sure. It, he's like, dude, I like, he's like, I'm not getting you on the range. Cause I think that you're, cause like, I'm trying to do some bullshit. He's like, you're a good dude. We, we all trust you. We like you. We got to have somebody we could trust. You're a hell of a shot. You know, um, and you've got time on, you know, it's like you're here six months, but you've been on the job five and a half years. It's not like you're a brand new guy. Sure. I wasn't the only guy ever to come from another agency and get hired there. We had my friend Paul got on the bike unit in his first year. And that was unheard of as well. So Paul was riding yeah, bikes is, his yeah. first year, but he had 13 years in East Orange before he came to our town. So they put him, you know, that's that counted for something. Paul, he only did 12 years on the job with us and then he retired. Right. So he subsequently did his 25 when everybody else, like the guys he got hired with all were only halfway through their career. Right. So Paul's you did yeah. you did 10 years on the streets as a copper. Yeah, did 14 to 14 total. Okay. Well, I did I did essentially about so you figure two years in corrections, including the academy. So some of the ballpark at 12 years on the streets. Okay. Now you said that you hurt your knee, you blew out your knee, and you medically retired. Now was that a forced thing or yeah. could they it was. There was no yep. like limited duty position that you could have taken or anything like that. They changed the contract. They did not want limited duty anymore. Two years, wow. two years before the new administration took over, um, when they implemented the new policies, they didn't want any more light duty positions. So they eliminated them all. Either wow. you were staying or you were leaving. So who's so, occupying these jobs that the limited duty people would be, you know, doing? Civilians. What jobs would that be, though? You know what I mean? They were like finding jobs for guys when they got hurt. They're like shredding paper in the back okay you know it's not like it was any and that's i guess they're trying to avoid they didn't want hundred and twenty thousand dollars your paper shredders okay um and you got guys sitting in light duty two years right two and a half three so they gave you one year to recover and it was not happening for me and that was it um i had no choice i was forced to medically retire so at that point in time in your career, what were you doing? And if you don't mind talking about it, how did you injure yourself? Yeah, I mean, so essentially in brevity, 
uh, three female shoplifters hit me with their car. Uh, it's a long story. Okay. I think one day I'll do an episode on the whole thing, but sure. I just got to ask my attorney what I could talk about because they were subsequently uh, found liable for damages Okay. later on. And I don't know, because I asked him a long time ago, I was like, hey, Frank, can I talk about some of this stuff? He's like, no, you can't. They're sealed documents. Mm. Da, 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 da. I wonder sure. if there's like a limitation. I'm going to text him right now. As a matter of fact, I'm just going to write that on my notes to text Frank. I want to see if I can talk about it because I do want to yeah. do an episode because there's a lot of speculation about. Um, were were you married at the time? Did you, were you in a relationship? Do you have kids? Yeah. I so mean, I was. Where I were was, you at uh, personally? No, I was with my I was with my wife, and I think that we had. Yes, we just had our first uh, child. I have four kids, so it was in okay. 2014. I just had my son. Uh, right after that is when I sustained the injury. Um, and then again, subsequently, just a few months later, maybe eight months later, I ended up having to medically retire. It didn't look like it was going to get better. Uh, and, you know, listen, my knee, namely end knees, they're not well. So people were like, oh, you know, you left because you wanted to leave. I'm like, yeah, it's not how it works. I probably have about, I don't know, a thousand pages and seven desks of MRIs to show how significant my knee damage actually was. And I had, you know, yeah. medical procedures done. And, you know, people just start to conjure up this thought and belief that, like, I just chose at that moment in my life that I was oh. going to retire as a cop. I remember, the, I remember the doctor telling me, he's like, you're not going to be a cop again. And I was like, I'm sorry. What did you say? Oh, and he's God. like, you're not going to be. He's like, you're not anytime soon. He's like, or if ever, putting a 30-pound belt on and starting to jump fences and fight people. And he's like, it's not going to happen. Your knees, this is just a real significant permanent damage. I was like, wow. Right. So how did you yeah, yeah, so I, I, that? I mean, that would be, you know, for uh, you were a younger cop, you know, you're full of piss and vinegar still. And it sounds like, you know, you enjoy the job and all that. I mean, how did you deal with that? That's like going hundred miles an hour in a race car and slamming the brakes that are hitting a brick wall. I mean, how do you deal with anything? You just accept it, right? Divine intervention, I would assume at some point. Um, and you just accept it for what it is wasn't an easy thing to think about. You're sitting there just going like, what am I going to do now? Da, 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 da. Like, maybe this is a God, let this happen for a reason. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was scared, you know, but then I kind of started finding my way. I did like either lay there and die or get up and swim. So, um, you know, it was a, I was scared. I, I certainly was, I didn't know what I was going to do next. Um, fortunately enough, New Jersey has a, Pretty decent pension system. So, uh, but I when I left, I didn't even know if I was getting the pension until about four months later. Wow. So I yeah, so I was working without any kind of income essentially. Um Oof. but I I actually started getting into real estate once I knew I was going to be medically retiring. I'd start planning okay. for that. Um, so yeah. I did get into real estate. Uh took a while to get some traction going with that, but I ended up having at some point some success. Okay. And it floated me for the time being. Uh that's my it's a lot, it's a long story, but I ended up building a real estate team and later dismantling a very successful real estate team to focus on street cop training 100% because both were exploding and I had to choose one. Okay. Uh, so I opted to go with the street cop training option. Now, the street cop training, you did that before you injured your knee? You were doing that Yeah, before? so in 2012. November of 2012 was when I did my first class. I want to say about 67 or 68 cops showed up for a free training course at the Middlesex County Fire Academy in Sayreville, New Jersey. And... I mean, it was a fraction of what it is now. And at the end, people were like, yeah, it was really good. Um, and they made some suggestions like, you know, you need more PowerPoint stuff. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm learning it. 
Uh, but they people were really happy with it, and it seemed like it really made a difference to folks. It was a two-day program at that time. Okay. But again, I was raw, man. Like, I was raw. <laughs> you know, but I was entertaining, and the stuff that I wanted to talk about was important. I knew that people needed to know the things that I knew. There was things that people did not know. They didn't know how to be cops. Sure. And I hate to say that. Like, some did, but not many. Okay. Now, looking back, what do you miss the most about your police days? Pursuits. That's it. Pursuits, man. I had a, I, 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 I swear to God, that's the best invention in the history of mankind is a being a cop in a pursuit. It's the best. You know, for our department, when I first started, every night was a pursuit. Every night, it was to just a question of when. And you know, we had the old adage of "you catch them, you clean them." You know, if you kick it up and <laughs> you start it, well. Yeah, you know, those guns and drugs or whatever else is that's in that card. It's all yours. You know, don't try and pawn that shit off on anybody else. But like you said, it just makes you feel like a cop. You know, it's just so much fun. And we were pretty much our department was chase them till the wheels fall off. Us too. You know, and for a younger cop, like in you know time on, there was nothing better. I. I I, your heart just starts jumping and you're just like, oh my God. You know, I was an FTO before I got promoted to sergeant and I always got my recruits in a pursuit, hopefully in the first couple of nights. And it wasn't hard. I worked in one of the worst neighborhoods in the city. You know, every other car was probably stolen, you know, or whatever is going on. They got a gun in there. They got, who knows what they got, but they they ain't stopping from the police. And you learn so much. And I think probably one of the best things about a, a vehicle pursuit is the officers that do it well, it almost sounds like they're ordering a pizza over the air. They're not the, oh, squad 50, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. or it's, yeah, squad 50. Yeah, I'm going westbound on north, uh, you know, 1500 block. We're going 45 miles an hour. Vehicle is, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, it, it's, you could just tell, okay, this, this copper is squared away. You know, he's having fun with it. You know, if I'm a boss and I wound up being a boss, I'm going to let him keep chasing because he ain't screaming into the microphone. You know, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a feeling that it's very hard to explain. It's just, you got the adrenaline, the excitement, and it's fun. I thought it was a blast. It was a blast. And you know what? We had essentially a lot of our stuff ended up on highways and you'd hear that same calm cool collective tone of voice like this yeah traffic's light uh yeah passing 142 on the parkway speed so let's take a look at we're at about 115 right now um you know and people like <laughs> you know we we had to it's, i never forget there's a story i got in the first pursuit when we got cameras so <laughs> it was like now you cameras had to start like everything oh my god right so so not that I was scared to be in the pursuit, but it was like, hey, your speed's better be accurate. So Tim Majek, who was a friend of mine, was on the radio, and the lieutenant was Lieutenant George Conklin. And Tim, you know, it's so funny because he, it was at night. I worked afternoons 5P to 3A. I remember calling out this pursuit, and I'm like, yeah, uh, we're we're northbound Route 1, uh, speeds are. And I, and I just said, I don't think I said speeds are. I go, 122. And so... Tim said the lieutenant looked over and goes, is he talking about the time or the speed? <laughs> because nobody ever called out 122 before. Oh, yeah. We had to call out the real speed. 
Sure. You know what I mean? So we had to say like, yeah, 122. And I like, I couldn't lie about it or like, it was like 122 or 118. And he like, George had a very, very calm disposition. He'd been on job for like 38 years. And he goes, is he talking about the time? And Tim's like, no, I think that's how fast he's going. And they let me chase it. And we won, you know, we got the, we got the pursuit. Uh, yeah. you know, I was, I was a competent cop. So they let me chase. Yeah. We, and we weren't unique in the fact that once we got squad cameras that changed everything. Cause like you said, now there's a computer telling you later did was the cop even touching the brakes? How fast was he going? Was he wearing a yeah, seatbelt? Right. Was I mean, and unfortunately, we actually only... had, wait, check this out. We had a, we had this sergeant who was a traffic division sergeant. What a fucking asshole this guy was. He did have a fucking friend in the world. He's probably one of the world's biggest pieces of shit. Anyway, and I, I could say that without saying his name because anybody who worked with me knows exactly what I'm talking about. First pursuit with the first camera. He's up in the chief's office saying he didn't hit the brake enough, see? Yeah. And the chief, thank God, who I, I think I met the chief once in fucking 10 years. I met him one time because uh, he didn't talk to anybody. Uh, he said to him, get out of the office and go back downstairs and shut the fuck up and stop worrying <laughs> about everybody else. Except Because this wow. dude was one of those guys. He was like one of those guys that like was picked on in high school. Like, oh, okay. Yeah, he's he was this guy was just everybody's worst enemy. He was a fucking scumbag uh, and left on bad terms because he was a fucking piece of shit. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. But unfortunately... The camera is just one camera. You don't have all the angles. And if you know anything well, that's about That's exactly what the argument was. Yeah. Right? You just, that was the argument. You don't see exactly what's going on. I mean, perfect example was we, we had a um, burglary problem, blah, blah, blah. We knew who was doing it. We put, we got a warrant and we put GPS on the bad guy's vehicle. It's like, okay. So it's like, okay, we got enough time to take him down and arrest him. Well, the GPS ran out of gas, ran out of battery. So we're, we we kind of knew where he was, and it's like, oh, I'm the first one. I see him. I'm like, cool. Little pursuit. Wasn't too terrible. Do a felony traffic stop. And it just so happened there was a newsman in the area, in a, in a Channel 12 news van. And I'm like, son of a bitch. You know, I'm calling him out. I got the rifle. You know, we're doing a felony traffic stop. And he's out there with his cell phone. He didn't have a camera camera. He just had his cell phone. And... I have a buddy that's responding to back me up and from his cell phone camera, the footage, it looks like I'm pointing my rifle directly at my friend and my friend is directly pointing his pistol at me. It couldn't have been further from the truth, but it's camera angles. You know, it just looks terrible. And it, you know, I'm watching it on news that night and I, I'm like, holy shit, this is terrible. My phone starts ringing. Yeah. It's my buddy. So, Are you watching this? I'm like, holy shit. We're, we we're muzzle fucking each other. I'm like, no, we weren't not even close. You know, it's just the angle. It looked terrible. Yeah. Yeah. No, it happens. It does. It does. So you start with the street cop training. What is that? And who is it for? It's for everybody in law enforcement. And, you know, I think you've been around long enough to know that the bar is set pretty low in police training. And, uh, I, you know, I just thought, one, I had some knowledge that I'd like to share and not keep to myself. Um, and then I found other people who had some real good knowledge and what I didn't think they should keep it to themselves. And now we've grown to, at this point, about 45 instructors in the field. And, uh, you know, if you go on the website, streetcop.com, for me to try to explain every single class that we have as I sit here, it would take forever. But, you know, 
I think that we have some of the most profound and talented people in this industry who have these amazing gifts that are sharing them with other people. Um, and I'll just, for a few examples, we have one of the country's most significant interdiction officers, Kenny Williams, who essentially shares what he looks for and how to knock down significant seizures on the highways, cold stops. Uh, we have another guy who's a lieutenant at the Boston Police Department who has made his career on being known for recovering illegal guns. He shares that knowledge with the world. And what's crazy is these guys go out and they find guns and large seizures. And I'm talking about like kilos and yeah. hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash and stolen human beings and trafficked human beings and and wanted people. So it's pretty profound when for the first time in people's careers, they've been taught how to do the police work for real, not the bullshit of running a rear antenna radar or running random plates. Okay. Now, this is something where you go to different police departments and give like maybe a two or three day uh, class on something. Is that right? Well, most of uh, every training that course that we have now is a one day program. Uh, okay. Nothing's a two day anymore, especially. And the reason for that is we have dealt with these staffing shortages across the country. So it's very hard to, to let a cop go for two days. So what we do is uh, some of our courses are longer. Some of them are 10 hours. Some of them are nine hour, but they're not boring at all. People like literally go fucking nuts and they sell it like crazy. It's typically an agency hosts most of the time, and they'll have a venue to host. Okay. And they'll host our training somewhere in the country uh, today, right after we're done with this podcast. We have a Canadian conversation happening for the first time. How much of it is uh, live and how much of it is uh, virtual? So you can take anything we have, pretty much anything, 80% of the programs we have. You can take them virtual at treecop.com if you're chomping at the bit to get the training, and then you can redeem that uh, no charge. That also gets you a ticket in person for the in-person training. And we urge people to go because, you know, one thing's watching church on TV and other things being in church. True. Uh, not that anybody wants to watch church on TV, but my <laughs> point is, is you catch my drift. Like you could watch a video of uh, a vacation in Bali, but when you're in Bali, you're really exper experiencing what it's like to be in Bali. You can only imagine. And uh, they are life-changing seminars. People literally change their careers. And I've said for years, uh, audaciously, but with confidence, if you spent $1,000 with our company, you would have a completely different career if you're the right person. But most people are the right people. Just to, and, and to be honest with you, it's worth it. That gets you four, that gets you at least four classes, right? Three to four classes for a thousand bucks. But what it does, is it saves you so much headache legally. It teaches you what you want to learn. It saves you mistakes. And it also may save your life because we do talk a lot about tactics that aren't taught in your police academies. As a matter of fact, we can prove that majority of police academies are setting you up to get killed in the line of duty. It's fucking wild. So we want to, you know, everybody's like, oh, we need better training. Like you can fucking cry all you want. We're actually doing it. So you could bitch and moan and complain. Somebody's got to do something. We need better stuff. We're not waiting for anybody. We're doing the better stuff. And the things that exist are, uh, are junk and everybody fucking knows it. I talked to a girl before that's kind of come on, to our organization as an instructor. Um, I'll be meeting with her next week. She's a, what a talent. She's like, I'm in a fucking leadership conference right now via Zoom. She goes, I want to fucking claw my eyeballs out. It's being put on by a very significant organization <laughs> yeah. uh, from the federal government. She said, it's fucking horrendous. She's like, it's literally the most, and this is what we do. It's the most boring shit. She's checked out mentally. She's on the phone with me, ignoring it, right? <laughs> 
So like, what are we doing when we need to say we need better of this, better of that? You can't just check a box. You've got to make sure you bring a product that actually creates the impact you seek to have. So what's so special about your training compared to others? You know, you said uh, we're, we do it with purpose, changing. emotion. I think that we have experts in the subject matter. The way that we do it, it doesn't feel like your typical death by PowerPoint. Right. It's a hell of an experience. Tommy Brooks, who does the gun game, is like watching a Broadway show for nine hours. Like you can't get enough <laughs> of it. But you want to, dude, it's unbelievable. Like this dude is flawless. And he's probably one of the most entertaining people you ever meet in your life. And and he's a legend in the Boston area. Anybody listening to this podcast from Boston knows who Tommy Brooks is. He's a he's a killer. And there are no downtimes. We had a class in Mississippi. I did one last week, and a girl came to the class. I said, What'd you think? She goes, you know, I came up at midnight and I was fucking fighting this morning. She goes, it's it's now 5.30 and you didn't, and she goes, I was fighting. When I got here in the morning, I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to stay awake. She's like, you right. know, I did not off once. I said, yeah, wow. And if somebody does start to fight that in my class, I know they worked midnights the night before, right? I'm not one of those guys that could go and just go to a training class that's working all day. I can't. I got to go home. I'm a bitch. I got to go to sleep. I got to get sleep. I can't function. But Typically, I hear that. Like, I worked midnights last night, and I was able to get through it. Like, dude, it was so good. There wasn't a moment where you didn't have my attention. Uh, and we all go to these classes, these fucking boring-ass, slow-ass. And by the way, let me just say, Pat, we're not the only game in town or show in town. Right. We have lined up with some of our partners. Uh, and I say that in the sense that we don't have business partnerships with them, but we have business friendships with them. Um, and there are some really great trainers out there who probably align more with us than some of your typical historic training companies that they're just obsolete now, you know? When yeah. you were the only show in town and that's all we had, we had no choice. But now times have changed. Um, the bar is set significantly higher. And I say that I'm not challenging people, just the fucking truth. And that's the beauty about business is like, he who has the best product will win. And yeah. that's what I love about it. Now, um, is Sean Grogan still working with you? Oh hell yeah! That's my that was, dude. He was my. I got him in his first pursuit. Remember that one? <laughs> that one where the guy was complaining about the hit, not hitting the break enough. That scumbag. Sean yeah. was in the car with me. He was in, he would just finished field training and got and I took him as a partner. He might have been in field training with me. I don't know which one it was. And uh, that was his first pursuit. He was my he was my partner for years. Oh, that's funny. I had Sean on my show probably about a month ago, a little bit more than that, mm -hmm. and uh, he was in Wisconsin, so. I went out and had a beer with him. Nice guy. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, good dude. Super, super guy. You know, departments and the public and politics, you know, one of their solutions to the perceived problem with police is more training, more training, more training. No, it's and, actually correct training, not just more training. Well, you know, that isn't brought up. But, you know, the, the generic label is like, oh, God, these cops need more training. But, you know, most states only mandate, you know, like, what, 48 hours a year for in-service or whatever. I mean, do let's face be. facts. Power DMS, hitting the fucking slide to the right. Yes. You know, we give the dispatchers 10 bucks to do it, you know? You know, we had a great academy. We learned a ton. And for a while, our in-services were pretty damn good, whereas... We'd go with the TAC unit and we'd do room clearing, stairwell clearing. And it did two things. First off, we're doing that every day at work and it's good to have a refresher and, you know, kind of check yourself and you make sure you're using good tactics. And secondly, it wakes you up 
like you said before, you know, like the death by PowerPoint, at least you're up, the blood's flowing, you're thinking now you're getting into cop mode and it's a great feeling. And then they would sprinkle in some firearms with it and it was awesome, but they hit the brakes on it and it was, okay, what fire do we have to put out? What new thing, you know, did a cop get into a trick bag about X, Y, or Z? It's like, okay, now we're going to hammer you over the head with this sensitivity training or whatever training and or it okay, happened listen, I, at a national guess level. what by the way like i'm okay with the idea of having some sensitivity communication training if it's good right like just don't make it the crap that you give us we had we had training one time pat one of our power dms's was on rainwater and the difference between this this was cops they were just what they were sending to cops the state of new jersey mandated that we knew which 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 storm drains were for rainwater and which ones were for regular like sewage. Okay. That was a mandatory thing from the state of New Jersey. No bullshit. It's like a 30, 30, you had to take a test on it at the end. So they put like little fish on all the fucking the things here. It's it's like the most absurd shit. And people like literally are politicians are hanging their hats on like we're doing something. I'm like, you didn't do shit. <laughs> so You're- briefly, what can I expect if I'm a copper and I take one of your courses when I walk out the door? What should my feeling be? What should I, what should the overwhelming like feeling that I have of fill in the blank? I had no fucking idea that this is what police work looked like. I want to fucking go out and be a cop. I'm motivated. I'm now nowhere to go. It's a whole new perspective and it's a whole new set of confidence and maybe some sense of relief as well. So it's a very powerful experience. I mean, there's a reason why we have the numbers that we have. Um, it's not because I do the best social media, which my social media is not too shabby, but it's because word of mouth. Sure. Everybody comes in and says, my partner so-and-so said I should come and take this. Next time you come back, I had to be here. Um, so, you know, our product speaks for itself and we give a fuck a lot. And it's clear it comes out in, in what we get in reviews. It's very rare day that we get somebody who's like, that was some bullshit. Okay. Uh, rare. Gotcha. Now let's segue to the podcast, which yeah. I enjoy. Why? Thanks, man. Why did, why did you start the podcast? Gary Vaynerchuk. So, uh, you know, I, I, I knew that podcasting, I'm a, I'm a profound follower of Gary Vaynerchuk, who people don't know he's a, uh, I want to give him the right label, but I guess the macro is significantly successful businessman and mm-hmm. probably one of the most profound business minds of today uh his podcast is phenomenal i certainly would implore anybody who has interest in business to listen to the things that he puts out but you know knowing that it was a big portion of the business platform that we weren't hitting i just had a lot of recorded videos essentially told a guy that we had working here you know do me a favor edit some of that shit put it on a podcast let's get this rolling and we were lightly tap dancing and touching with it and all of a sudden, it started getting some real traction. <laughs> and then, you know, he sat me down. He's like, hey, you know, do you ever see our numbers? And I'm like, eh, let me take a look at him. He's like, yeah, this year we've had like 2.1 million downloads. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? So once I saw that, we started taking it much more seriously. And, um, you know, for us, I think when I looked at the podcast space, I looked at the business space because we are a successful business as well. And I also looked at the law enforcement space and so one was very very competitive and very difficult to enter into the business space because you have some of those 
you got people who are billionaires that have podcasts, and these guys sure. are not billionaires because they're fucking idiots. They're billionaires because they're fucking geniuses. Um, and then I went into the law enforcement space, and I was looking around. It was pretty desolate. And I said, uh, we'll do it here. And we picked education. And, you know, now to date, you know, our first podcast were probably a little rough. I feel like we're getting better at them. But uh, we typically end up, because every day Chartable comes out or Apple iTunes, but we typically end up in the top 100 in the education space. Excellent. Yeah, I, I checked you on Listen Notes. Have you ever heard of that? No. Okay, they they rank podcasts. And it's not by category. It's just podcasts. And your podcast is in the top 2.5% of all podcasts right now. Oh, thanks. Yeah, Spotify ranked as top 1%. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. that's significant to say the least. Well, thank how you. Long, how long it. have you been going on with the podcast? We, we're not even two years. Okay. That's, that's astounding. Do you advertise or do you, what do you do to promote the podcast or do you? So essentially at this point now, we, I just went to shot show last week, got a little, got a lot of FaceTime with some significant brands and we have a lot of interest in people wanting to come on and do some partnerships with us. Um, so, uh, you know, we're growing. It's not just a podcast business. It's also a business, uh, outside sure. of the podcast, but certainly icing on the cake being the podcast and, Anytime I do anything, anybody can add, you could ask anybody that works with me. It's kind of comical because Frankie is our podcast producer came in. He's like, you know, we're doing a lot of podcasts and I can't keep up and da da da. And I'm like, I understand. So we'll get another podcast producer. He's like, well, I was thinking about like, maybe we didn't do as many. And I'm like, listen, dude, when something starts to have some momentum, your boy here's tripling down. And okay. this thing's having momentum, like the set, like the way, so we'll, we're just going to knock a fuck ton of these out and keep getting bigger, better guests and all this other shit. We'll just keep, keep rocking out. And, you know, some of the best podcasts that we have come from people who aren't big names. I mean, some of the big names are good too, but typically I think that the ones where we get into people who were significantly injured in the line of duty, whether they're shot or involved in a traumatic incident, those are really, we get a lot of interesting feedback. Even the therapist, the, the mental therapist that we have on talking about trauma and police relationships and this stuff all comes back and people are, finding a lot of value in it. So I'm proud that people are listening to what we're doing. It's an interesting ride. Yeah. You um, know, my favorite thus far is doc, the angry Viking doctor. That uh, guy was Trevor. awesome. Yes. Yeah. You know, I just, he hit so many good points and he has such credibility because he did the job. Right. You know, there's lots of police psychologists out there, et cetera. But if you haven't walked the walk, then, I mean, I'm not saying that they cannot be beneficial, but that's just a sprinkle of more credibility that cops are just pessimistic to begin with. And they're very the human leery. beings are pessimistic to begin with. Cops, I mean, are just cops. cops are worse. Cops are worse. They are because they take that pessimism and they fucking surround themselves with it. And then they get smashed with the worst things in society. So it just makes them completely jaded. Absolutely. So you're surrounded by these guests on your show. You got a front row seat to a lot of experts and people who have been through all kinds of crazy stuff. What's been some of the most profound or like a really good learning experience that you've received from having the podcast? Um, I know it's kind of a Sophie's you know, Choice question. Yeah, it's like, oh, which kid do you like best or anything like that? No, no, I I get it. I think I can I give it overall thing. Um, You know, I'm proud of it. I'm proud to have the relationships that I have. There's a big responsibility to doing what I do, not just the podcast, but overall. I'm glad to see that a lot of people who have bigger names and bigger platforms are 
you know, fans of ours and are willing to jump in and do the podcast. Uh, but I think one of the most proud things I am of the podcast or when I'm happiest the most doing it is when I can, I think being a good podcast host is really trying to read the body language of people and trying to find that, that part that really makes them tick. It means a lot to them, whether sure. it's emotional or an impactful part of their life. And then I try to, once I figure out what that is, I go right, I start digging hard. And that's where some of the magic comes out of. So somebody might come on my podcast and want to talk about one thing. Mm-hmm. But when I hear something else in their life that I can see has moved them or has significant meaning, I just shifted to that. Um, so it, we're a law enforcement podcast, but I think that it really is a universal podcast where most people can listen to it. And I got to tell you, we have 450,000 subscribers. There's no way there's 450,000 cops listening. And a lot of people will see me out in public and be like, hey, dude, I love your fucking podcast. And I'm like, are you a cop? They're like, no, but I just love the fucking podcast. I'm like, oh, thanks, man. I appreciate it. And, you know, I come on there with the intention of trying to be informative, educational, uh, thoughtful, and I really want people to find value in it. You know, I I wouldn't listen to it if I didn't find value in it, you know? And I think there's entertainment to it as well. You know, podcasts, podcasts are part entertainment and part information. I, you know, when you boil them down, I think, and when you can c- combine both, instead of being this boring ass person, you know, spouting about this, that, or the other thing, or the wild and crazy guy that's trying to make everybody laugh, you know, oh et cetera. God, yeah. Yeah. It, we've all seen that, but when you can combine both where you can keep the listener engaged, where he's in the parking lot and he's listening to your podcast. And he doesn't want to go in the grocery store yet because he wants to hear what's next, even though he could turn it off and turn it back on again. But he's so wrapped up in it. And it's like, yeah, I, I really want to see, you know, then, you know, you're doing something right. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you saying nice things about the podcast and acknowledging it because, uh, you know, we do put a lot of work, time, energy and effort into it. So we try to do the best that we can. And, you know, I, I'm glad that people have have taken it and accepted it. And you look, I was a class clown in high school. It's faring well for me as a professional adult. That is for sure. <laughs> okay. So you, again, I'd said before you have a front row seat to a lot of professionals, experts in law enforcement through the podcast through your training. What do you think the future of law enforcement is right now? It can't be anything but what we make it, right? So it's not going anywhere. Let's acknowledge that first. Law enforcement's not going anywhere. There's going to be cops way after we're both gone. Right. Hopefully you a little bit before me because you're you're older than I am. <laughs> Hopefully I outlive you. But if not, Pat, it was a blast. But um, I think that the future of law enforcement holds in the hands, as nuts as it sounds, of probably maybe 10 companies. We could never depend on the government to give us what we need. And I think these 10 companies, maybe even less than 10 begin to, we've already done it. We're doing it without them. We're not waiting for the government to catch up. I think at some point it becomes just a contractual thing where you see a much more knowledgeable and professional and well-trained police officer. I think cops get better as the future goes on. No bullshit. Um, I don't know about these large, liberally ran cities where they treat the cops like shit because the best ones aren't going to those ones typically. Um, some they have a lot of great men and women, but yes, 
I think I think law enforcement overall has a has a becomes a much more profound and you could thank the internet for that. Just better, more well trained cops, safer cops, and less incidents that the public can take a snicker at as we move forward. And it's men like myself and others in the field and the 45 instructors and the staff we have supporting us here and the world getting behind us, uh, chiefs associations and all this stuff supporting what we do and believing that, you know, hand us the ball, let us do the work and you'll be going to be really happy when, when we're done. And I think that's where law enforcement goes to. You can listen to one side of the rhetoric and say the job's over, blah, the job can't be over. It's impossible. Job can't be over. So you have two options. First option is you can say the job's over and then just leave police work. Or you can say, we're going to be here. Let's make it as good as we can. And it's a, you know, Pat, we're a long time away from it being significantly better. But it is certainly not impossible. And what I mean by that is I, we got to wait for the old guard to leave and the new guard to come up. So what we're trying to do is raise the new guard appropriately. Um, not like these old fucks. Not all of them but these men and women who have all this time in the job and think the old story of listen to what we tell you to do. Don't ask questions. We're doing it my way. There's no conversation that we have failed tremendously in leadership. And we have seen it profoundly. Uh, I mean, LAPD just banned the blue line flag. You want to talk about fucking failed leadership? Like fuck those guys. You know what I mean? Whoever made the decision, you're like, you're a fucking, you're a loser. You know, I I don't give a fuck if LAPD doesn't send anybody to my goddamn training. They don't anyway. It doesn't matter. But, like, to turn your back on the fucking flag that we drape our fallen brothers and sisters on, you're a piece of shit. So we can't have people like that anymore. And if those people continue to exist, the problems will always continue to persist. And uh, we have to get leaders, like, real leaders in there who say, like, fuck you, then take me out of the whole thing. And you can find your, your, the person who will pander to you, but at least I can set the example that I'm not going to pander because that's ridiculous that they I are think, banning the blue line flag. I think it starts at the top. I think it starts whoever your chief, sheriff, whoever. I think even before, I think even higher than that, my friend. I think it's even into the political atmosphere at Washington and your your state sure. levels. That's where it starts because nepotism, politics, right. dude. I've seen it firsthand. It's absurd. It's ridiculous. The 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 behind the scenes deals. It's wild shit, and nobody's gonna give it up. Because they're the ones no. who make the rules and, you know, well, nobody's going to give it up. The benefit of being on a department for a long time is you saw the cycle of chiefs going through. And at first, they're the darling. The mayor loves them. He or she is going to change this, that, and the other thing. Then things go tits up and it's like, okay, well, now the chief is the bad guy. He's the political pinata. Get rid of him. You know, and on to the next. And it's a cycle that continues and continues. And it's like, well, I'm going to stand behind my officers until it becomes uncomfortable for me. You know, it's not politically correct. This is, There's some gray here. And I want to keep my job. Now, why you would want that job? I mean, the chief only made like 10 grand more than an inspector. Well, not in New Jersey. They make a lot of money here. Oh, okay. They're all, they're, all into the, they're all into the high six figures, 200 plus. Oh, okay. Yeah, not here. Not here. But anyways... We'll see how that all works out. You know, this is a good place for us to end our conversation. Where can people learn more about you and your organization? Where Where do they go? Yeah, like I was saying before, I'm just thankful that you had me on the podcast. It's a real honor and appreciate it tremendously that 
you have said such nice things about us and asked such good questions. You can find us at streetcop.com. Uh, you could find us on every social media platform by literally plugging in Street Cop Training. We have a significant following uh, on Instagram. We have a Facebook group for law enforcement only with about 96,000 members. Please answer the three three questions, but it's free training all day long. Nothing costs any money. We're on TikTok. Um, you know, we're all over the place. You can't, you can't not find us. If you're looking for upcoming courses or our conference in Nashville, Tennessee in three months from now, it's April 23rd through the 28th. You should look at our lineup. It's wild. It's insane. We have a crazy lineup there. To me, I would think somebody would be hard-pressed to find a better law enforcement conference in the country. And clearly our enrollment in that conference speaks to why I say that. We are three and a half months out, and we're at well over 1,000 people enrolled as attendees wow. for the conference. But yeah, streetcop.com. Anywhere you put in streetcop training, you'll find us. Outstanding. All right. Well, thanks again for being on the show and hopefully we'll see you again soon. All right, Pat. Good meeting you, buddy. Guys, if you're in an area where you're trying to get to our classes, but we're not close to you, fret not. We actually have on-demand training at streetcop.com. You can take that course online right now and then you could attend that training in the future at no additional cost. You can redeem your voucher. So you get two for the price of one. We don't want to deny you the ability to take this training now, especially knowing that it can keep you safe at a very minimum, putting bad guys in jail where they belong, and at the maximum going home to your family. Check out streetcop.com for that offer.